Church, our church's mission statement is sending transformed people to influence their world for Christ. I'm contractually obligated to mention that in the sermon, so I went ahead and put it at the beginning so that if Danny listens to the podcast, he can check it off, turn it off, and keep moving through his sabbatical. No, I'm teasing. Uh, Our mission statement has given us great clarity as a church to figure out who we are and what we are doing, and not just the church overall, but the ministries within the church that we are sending We are sending people. We're a sending operation meant to fulfill the great commission to send people out. And not just people, but transformed people. That while you're a part of our church in the building, yes, but also in our community, that you are experiencing transformation. Transformation that only comes from Jesus Christ. That we are being transformed into Christ-likeness. That we look more and more like Jesus as we behold more of his glory. That we are being transformed. Transformed people sent to influence. I like that word influence because it is not saving. That we can't save people. As Christians, we can't save people. As a church, we cannot save people. But we can influence. We can rub shoulders. We can be a signpost along the way. And all of this done for Christ, for his glory, and because of his work in our hearts. We've even synthesized this further with a motto. We're asking you to live sent, or to be live sent, if that's helpful for you as a state of being. Asking you to live sent lives. And I'll be honest, most of the time, I'm excited about it. I'm good with it. Yes, it's a GIC party in my mind. All right, I'm excited. Let's live sent. I feel live sent. And then some days, I don't feel live sent. I feel live thrown. Live tossed to the wolves. Like Jonah, some days I feel live vomited if I could say that, who was headed one direction and a great fish swallowed him up and spit him back to where he was going, that I feel live wandering. Have any of you ever felt that? Do you feel that currently? You're not nodding, but I think inside you're saying yes. (laughs) That we have seasons of our lives where we are wandering, where we are in the wilderness. I'll confess to you that uh, I've gone through a season of wilderness lately. That seven months ago, we had a baby, and it was so exciting, and it's wonderful, and you feel God's blessing, and then two months later, you're wondering <laughs> that our world, which we were sent to influence, was big, and then all of a sudden, it shrunk to two people. That's my world right now. A season of wandering in the wilderness. What am I doing here? Where am I? The best illustration I know to give for wilderness is when you know you're in the will of God, but you feel outside of his blessing. Where you know you're in God's will, but you feel outside of his blessing. We could probably, through conversation, figure out a way to expand that definition Because some of us are in a wilderness by God's design, and some of us are in a wilderness of our own making. Like the prodigal son who squandered his father's wealth and wanted the slop that the pigs ate, but knew he could return home to the father. 
that many of us are in a season of wilderness, and that's okay. We can't go into God's presence and stay there like Peter wanted to do at the transfiguration, just stay there forever. We have to leave God's, God's presence sometimes, leave the church, but we are pursuing him and going back to him, and we go through seasons of wilderness. God's people went through a season of wilderness, and for the next six weeks, we're going to study that. That if you are a person who is in a season of wilderness, you can hear. This sermon series is for you. Hear how God meets with his people in the wilderness and how they can respond to him. This story begins in Exodus, but really it begins much further back of God calling Abraham. And Genesis chapter 12 is the call to Abraham, and he continues to call him in Genesis 15. And as part of this calling in Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, well, he's already told them, You're going, I'm going to make your name great, and your people are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and to a man without a son, that's hilarious, that's laughable. But God reveals himself and keeps his promise and Isaac comes and then Jacob and then Joseph. But God calls Abraham and he also tells them that your people, your descendants are going to be sojourners in a foreign land. And they're going to be uh, oppressed and in slavery for 400 years. And when I hear about this, I want to let you know that I am both disturbed and comforted. I'm disturbed that God would allow his people to experience oppression. I don't know why, and I can't really explain it, but I have to have space in my theological mind for a God who does these things. But I'm also deeply comforted because while they were in oppression, God was with them. That God knew from the beginning what he was going to do, and he had purpose and reason behind it. That when God called Abraham, part of it was this promise that his people would be foreigners, oppressed in slavery. And so God calls Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then there's Joseph, the 17-year-old boy. Steve preached on him a couple weeks ago, who has a dream that all of his brothers are going to bow down to him. And when he shares this at the dinner table, it doesn't go well. They decide, let's kill him. Reuben steps in, let's at least not kill him and put his blood on our hands. Let's sell him into slavery. And so it says that they threw him in a pit in the wilderness. And Joseph experienced wilderness for the first time and some traders come by. Some Midianite traders, some Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt. And they take Joseph with him and he's enslaved. And they sell him to Potiphar and the Lord in the wilderness finds favor on Joseph to where he elevates him to number two in Potiphar's household. And then there's the whole wife incident to she comes on to him. He says no. He loses his jacket. He's thrown in prison. In the wilderness again, the God shows favor to Joseph, elevates him to number two over all of the prisoners. He interprets a dream of a cupbearer and a baker. And so that years later, when Pharaoh has a dream, the king of Egypt has a dream, Joseph is brought in to translate, to interpret this dream. He finds favor in God's eyes to where he is number two. This immigrant, this foreigner from Israel is number two over all of Egypt. It's the original Alexander Hamilton story. Thank you for a couple chuckles, the Broadway people in the room. This dream that Pharaoh had was eventually interpreted that there would be seven years of famine, a feast, before there were seven years of famine. 
And through Joseph's leadership, he decides we're gonna save up. We're gonna save up and store grain and store food. And so that when the seven years of famine comes, they could eat and they could survive. And not just that, but other nations came and bought this grain and this food. And they made a lot of money and elevated Egypt as a rich nation. And not just that, but his brothers from Israel come down and they do bow before him. And more than that, they survive. They live, they get to eat this food. That God provides salvation through Egypt. When we think of this Exodus story, we think of Egyptians as the bad guys, right? But before they were the bad guys, they were the good guys. That through Egypt, God provided salvation. This is point number one for the sermon. A salvation through Egypt. If I had to guess, those of you who are going through the wilderness, that your wilderness now was once a blessing. That that job that you dislike, that you hate, was once a blessing to you. An answer to prayer of God's provision in your life. That that marriage that you're struggling in, your spouse was once a blessing to you. An answer to prayer of companionship. That that teenage child that is so difficult to raise, not you guys, your friends, not you. That teenage child was once a blessing on your household. That those aging parents that are so hard to care for, they were a blessing to you at one point. Bringing you up in the faith and pointing you to Jesus, hopefully. That what is now a wilderness was once a blessing. This is how God works in seasons. And we see a season of blessing in Egypt before it becomes a place of wilderness. Because what happened is that as, the, as Joseph died and that Pharaoh died, a new Pharaoh came and eventually it says they forgot Joseph. They forgot what Joseph meant to the country of Egypt. They forgot who he was and what his people were. And eventually they saw that the Israelite people were obedient to God and they were fruitful and multiplied. By the way, Shades Mountain is doing a great job of this. If you haven't been down to the preschool department, there are children everywhere. I just discovered this recently. Kids everywhere, it's amazing. But the Egyptians got scared and saw that these Israelites were populating and eventually could overtake us. And so we're gonna take these immigrants and we're gonna enslave them. We're going to put them uh, into indentured servitude and they're going to serve us and we're going to oppress them for hard labor for 400 years. That God's people were in slavery for 400 years until God calls them out of it. He calls to Moses while he was shepherding in the wilderness and says, you are going to lead my people out of slavery. And then we get the whole great story of Moses and the plagues. There's frogs, there's locusts, there's blood. It's amazing. Until finally that last plague of the death of the firstborn, the Israelites were saved from this because of the blood of a spotless Passover lamb. But the Egyptians experienced death of the firstborn. And finally, Pharaoh says, go, go. In the middle of the night, they didn't even have time to finish baking their bread. They grab everything that they can and they leave, and they begin to leave. And that's where we pick up. We're gonna read a good chunk of scripture this morning. We're gonna start in Exodus chapter 13, and I'm gonna begin reading in verse 17. Point number one 
of this sermon is God is a, a salvation through Egypt. Point number two, that he is a partner in the pilgrimage. I'm in Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 17. Read with me. <clears throat> when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of, Jake, of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. But on their way out of Egypt, God ushers them. He is a partner in their pilgrimage. That there is a pillar of fire and a pillar of clouds. Now, I do not know what this would look like a tornado of flames leading them. But I know that God stood before his people and did not just say, you're free, go, but rather walked with them towards their deliverance. He walked with them in a pillar of, of fire and in a pillar of clouds and ushered them out that he walked with his people, that God walks with his people, that God walks with us each and every day. He guides us through the power of his Holy Spirit. He walks with us. We see this image of this pillar of clouds later in scripture when we get to Isaiah 6, the holy, holy, holy passage and the whole temple filled with smoke representing God's presence that almighty God, Yahweh God, the God of these people walked with them, carrying them out of Egypt. I also like in here, and this is just more reading the Bible humorously of Moses having to carry Joseph's old bones 400-year-old bones he has to grab his bread and these things. And ah, the bones of Joseph. And he has to go and pack up old bones and carry them around, rattling as he walked out. To get the picture of 400-year-old bones, uh, William Shakespeare died about 400 years ago. Imagine digging up the bones of William Shakespeare, just to let you know how long they were in, in oppression. And to complete the metaphor, imagine Moses grabbing the skull of Shakespeare and saying... Red Sea or not Red Sea? That is the question. And they say, Red Sea, great, no Philistines. That was my only joke that I've written for this, so I hope you enjoyed it. God walks with his people. He is a partner in the pilgrimage through a pillar of clouds and a pillar of fire, escorting them to deliverance. Not only is he a partner in the pilgrimage, but he is a fighter for the fearful. Chapter 14, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart 
And he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. I'm going to pause for just a moment, because when we read the story, many of us know what happens, that there is a massacre, and that many, many Egyptians died, and that God allowed that to happen. And when I read this, I'm both disturbed and comforted. Because I have to have a place in my mind where God does this kind of stuff. And I'm deeply comforted that he does it for a reason. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The Lord does what he does so that the Egyptians would know that Yahweh God is the almighty God. And whatever gods they worship are not God, but he is God. Though what happens, yes, is a deliverance to the Israelites, but it's also so that the Egyptians would know that he is the Lord. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. We see that Pharaoh's army, all of them, and we have to recognize the word all means all, all of them are coming to retrieve perhaps over two million people that were going out. And so they send the whole army. And this is a rich nation by this time. Chariots, officers, horses, horsemen. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians, to live in slavery than to possibly die in the wilderness. Why? Why would you do this? It was so much easier and so much more comfortable just being a slave. Yes, sure, I was enslaved and oppressed and it was bitter hard labor, but it would have been better to live a life of bondage than to die in the wilderness. The people were afraid. They were afraid. Fear has no rational place in our mind. Fear doesn't make sense a whole lot of times. That yes, I am being followed, I'm being led by a pillar of fire and a pillar of clouds, and I remember a firstborn of every Egyptian household dying, and I remember the blood and the frogs and the boils and the locusts and all the other plagues. I remember all of those, but in this moment, I'm afraid. Why does fear work like that? 
How does fear take over our hearts so that we are unable to remember what God has done? I would like to think if I was one of the Israelites, I'd say, now, now, guys. Now, now, everyone. Yes, there's a monstrous army coming, and we are out here ready for battle, equipped for battle, though I don't really know what that means because as a nation enslaved, had not been to battle for 400 years with makeshift swords and shields, I don't understand, but I know, I would like to think that I would have been the one to say, God will be with this, but if I'm honest, knowing how fear works in my heart, I would have been afraid. Just as I'm afraid each and every day, and many of you are afraid of what is going to happen. We're afraid. But Moses says, verse 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not, Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. He says to his people, fear not, stand firm. When we see this sentence, fear not, our ears have to perk up because the Lord is going to do something, and do something amazing. Fear not. God says to Mary, fear not, O favored one. God says to Joseph, fear not. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. That God says to the shepherds, fear not. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That today in the city of David, a savior is born to you. That Jesus says to John in his revelation, fear not, for I am the first and the last and I died, but behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. I have the keys to what you're afraid of. Fear not. Fear not, Israelites. Stand firm and see the salvation of God that will be to you this day. All you have to do is be silent. Why is that so hard? Then in the midst of our fear, I can't stop talking about my fear. All you have to do is be silent. You don't have to do a thing. I am going to do it for you. Your salvation is possible because what I am going to do for you. You don't have to do a thing. Fear not. This is good news. This is good news to the Israelites then, and this is good news to us today. That our God will fight for us. And he is also a deliverer from the enemy. Verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. That the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of of Israel, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other 
all night, that the first act of God, that cloud is to come between the Egyptians and the Israelites as a shield, a hedge of protection over his people. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. We can stop here for just a moment and see this final futile confession of the Egyptians. That they knew, they knew that the Lord, and they say his name, Yahweh, because it's in capital letters here, they knew who was God. And that God's glory was revealed to them. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not One of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw that the the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. That God delivered his people and delivered them in a way that it was nothing they could do on their own. What options did they have besides stay and be killed or follow what God has led us? Follow where God has led us across dry dry ground. That God delivered his people from the hands of the enemy. What would it have been like to walk across a huge sea with a wall of water on your left and your right. And on the other side of that sea, see Moses raise his hands and the whole army of Egypt washing up on the seashore. That's how God defeats our enemies. God delivers us from the hand of the enemy. And the people respond in the only appropriate fashion. The people respond in worship. That God is a song for the saints. Chapter 15, verses one and two. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. 
I love seeing this picture of God's people worshiping him after their deliverance. Singing his praise that God, the Lord, Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He has saved us. And they're right because they were going to experience death or enslavement at the hands of the Egyptians. And now they are free. And God has not just made deliverance possible to the Egyptians on this day. But God has made deliverance possible for us today. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to deliver us from the hands of the enemy. That through Jesus Christ, though Romans 6 says we were slaves to sin, that we are liberated, experiencing freedom in Jesus Christ. That we were dead in our transgressions, but we are alive in Jesus Christ. That we were slaves and in bondage, and now we are free. My friends, this is good news to us today. That this seminal moment in the history of Israel points us to how God continues to work in history through his son, Jesus. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that we can experience salvation. We can experience salvation today and see how God has delivered salvation in the hands of our enemies. That Jesus himself, Christ, is also given us a salvation through death. That God used Egypt to save his people so that they would be saved from Egypt. Christ used death to save his people so that they would be saved from death. I'll say it again. God used Egypt in the story of Joseph to save his people so that they would be saved from Egypt. Just as Christ used death his death on the cross to save his people so that they would be saved from death. Christ on the cross experienced death for us so that we would not have to experience eternal death, that we can live eternally in Jesus Christ, the Christ who was crucified, buried, and resurrected, made it possible for us to be resurrected in him, that we are united to him in our baptism and will one day stand with him before the throne. Christ is a salvation through death, and he is also a partner in the pilgrimage. That Jesus walks with us every step of the way, that the Holy Spirit indwells us to lead us, to guide us. That the word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Just as God walked with his people, ushered them out of Egypt, he is walking with us in the pilgrimage today. He's a partner in the pilgrimage that Christ is a fighter for the fearful. And he does not fight with shields and swords, but he fights with the spiritual weapons of forgiveness, of mercy, of love, of kindness, of hope. The fruit of the Spirit is what he fights with so that we can face this world each and every day. Knowing we are united with Christ. Knowing that Christ does not fight from a position of defense, but having already achieved the victory. That's good news to us, amen? That Christ is fighting with us. He's a fighter for the fearful. And we are still afraid, but he fights for us. And he's also a deliverer from the enemy. That his death, his sacrifice, pays the price for our sin and that we are delivered 
that we don't have to fear death in Hades, but he has the keys and can deliver us because of his righteousness given to us that we can enter into his kingdom. And he is a song for the saints that one day we will be with that multitude of every tribe and tongue and nation standing before the throne of God and singing the praise, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That one day we will be able to stand before God face to face because of Jesus and what he's done for us. So I want to encourage you. I want to remind you that if you are walking through the wilderness... It's okay. But in those moments, remember. Remember our God of deliverance. Remember that we are saved from slavery into freedom. Remember that he fights for you. He walks with you. And yes, the wilderness is tough. And the wilderness is lonely. And the wilderness is fearful. And we don't know what's coming. But we do know that there is a promised land. And God will Deliver us. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your good news today. We thank you for your good news in Jesus Christ, that though we are a scared people who walk through the wilderness, that we are there and that we are alive because of our deliverance. We are in the wilderness, but we remember our baptism. We remember our salvation. We remember what you've done for us, how you've worked in history on that day, and how you work in history on this day. Draw our hearts to you, O Lord, to look to you in the wilderness. In Jesus' name, amen.